Law Enforcement Today radio show. I'm your host. My name's John J. Wiley. In addition to being a radio broadcaster, I'm a retired police sergeant. For the latest news articles and much more, check out our website, letradioshow.com. In the Law Enforcement Today show, we'll be joined by special guests. We'll be talking about their experiences and issues affecting law enforcement officers, first responders, their families, their community, and victims of horrendous crimes. Be sure to like us on Facebook. Our page is Law Enforcement Today Radio Show. Check out the daily articles on our website, letradioshow.com. And while you're there, download our free app. Be sure to look for the Law Enforcement Today Radio Show all over social media. We're on Facebook. Look for Law Enforcement Today Radio Show. On MeWe.com, look for Law Enforcement Today Radio Show. On Twitter, follow L-E-T Radio Show P-O-1. On Instagram, follow L-E-T Radio Show Podcast. On Rumble, look for Law Enforcement Today Radio Show. And on Gab.com, search for Law Enforcement Today Radio Show. Again, our website is letradioshow.com. Calling us from Oklahoma, we have Brian Serber on the phone. Brian, thanks for being a guest on Law Enforcement Today Show. Very much appreciated. Thank you, Jay. Glad to be here. Now, Brian, I, I don't want to butcher his resume. It's a, a vast resume in law enforcement. He has been uh, first assistant district attorney for Rogers Mays and Craig Counties in Oklahoma. He's also been a special assistant U.S. state's attorney for the Northern District of Oklahoma. He's also been an investigator for state of Oklahoma. Man, what haven't you done? Well, I, ha- I haven't dispatched yet, but uh, yet. yeah, I started as a prosecutor, uh, went from there to be an agency attorney for the State Narcotics Bureau, uh, went from there to be an agent, and then went over to um, uh, be an assistant DA, a first assistant uh, in a, uh, a district just outside of Tulsa. And you're also writing a book, which has not been published yet, correct? That's correct. The manuscript's at the copy editor right now. That's right. correct. Hopefully that'll be available very soon. We'll have to have you back to talk about that as well. Uh, I think on the history of the Law Enforcement Show, I've had one guest on who started off as a, a district attorney, a prosecuting attorney, and then went into law enforcement as, as an active sworn member, and then finished his full career, and then went back to being a prosecuting attorney. Well, that, that's where I'm at right now. And, uh, you know, I, I wasn't, uh, wasn't running away from my law enforcement career. Uh, the uh, main thing I tell uh, my, my police officer friends is really appreciate the fact that you, know, you don't have to pay for your ammo. Because at the range, when I empty a magazine, I just had a lot of fun. And now when I, you know, uh, drop a couple of AR magazines out the range, I kind of think that's like, you know, that's like $8. Yeah. So that, that's a big difference I didn't appreciate when I was there. Well, first of all, you worked at one of those agencies where they gave you ammo to practice with. We didn't have that luxury where I policed. You had to buy your own ammo and do your own practicing on your own time. Uh, that was nice. Of course, we had guys that everyone had their kind of zombie horde, and uh, some guys are very astute at kind of accumulating the agency's ammo. Uh, I was not that good. I had to kind of ask my buddies for some. It's funny. You bring that up. We had different nicknames for police in Baltimore. Uh, we had real police, good police, which are kind of synonymous. We had humps. Those are guys who did nothing. And then we had trappers. Those were the guys who got all the freebies and got the reduced price stuff, and they were able to hoard ammunition. Yeah, that's exactly right. Yeah, I've, I've seen all of those types. So you started off as a, as a prosecuting attorney. You're still an attorney. And you wound up, I guess, kind of a backdoor way going into being a, a sworn investigator. Tell us about that. You know, I've, I've always enjoyed just uh, teaching and, and speaking on law enforcement issues. 
And uh, by the time I went to the uh, the state bureau and was in the general counsel's office, I realized I'd, I'd taught uh, probably a hundred classes on search and seizure. We're discussing knock and talk. I've never done one myself. Um, and so uh, then, kind of the next phase is if I'm going to effectively describe how to do that, I might uh, uh, want be a good idea to learn. Uh, just kind of what it's like to be a knock and talk because every time I went out on a ride along or go out with the, with the guys, I'd always learn something. And uh, so um, my director allowed me to kind of be uh, both an agent and an attorney. Uh, then I'm uh, about mid thirties. I realized I just look forward to going out with my buddies on their deals and kind of dreaded my administrative work. And so at that point, I kind of just pulled the trigger and um, and uh, became an agent, special agent. And at that point, uh, they kept me in the legal division. The uh, one of my uh, very good friends became the uh, general counsel, a tremendous general counsel when I left. And so I'm still somewhat involved with the legal division, but as classified as a special agent, did that for eight and a half years. A lot of men I worked with, I, I say men, that's manpower, men and women, uh, did 10, 15 years as active police and then started going to school and went back, got their degree, went to law school and became lawyers. So when he retired, they had a law degree and had all these years of police experience and they found it to be very, very beneficial. I kind of find it very interesting that you felt, look, I'm teaching this stuff, but I haven't done it, so I need to learn how to do it. You know, if I had to say one of the things that, uh, and look, I, I love my brother and sister prosecutors, uh, but it's it's very difficult to appreciate in kind of a sterile courtroom. You know how the story ends. I mean, the very first deal I did, um, I, after 11 years thinking I'm kind of this pro-cop prosecutor, I realized when I read that, I know how the story ends, and I still didn't appreciate when I'm out there myself, I don't know if this is going to be a situation where I've got to uh, fight the guy. Is it going to be a knock and talk? Are there other people there? And so just I still, after all those years of thinking uh, I'd work with police officers and could argue for them, I still didn't appreciate what it was like being there because of just the calm, feral setting of, uh, of a courtroom. So I don't. I always have kind of thought that in a courtroom we don't appreciate the difficulty and challenges that police officers face, and so um, so that's kind of wanted to do it. And I kind of it was at that point, maybe midlife crisis, but I really just enjoyed that. And so where I, I know a lot of people that were police officers, then they go to law school and kind of transition. You know, I'd been uh, at that point about eleven years either being a special prosecutor at the Bureau or assistant DA, about 11 years I had um, actually been arguing motions to suppress, uh, defending search warrants, uh, looking at reports. And so the having seen how they were attacked, essentially what I did, and it, it did very much help me in kind of my uh, uh, giving teaching presentations. But I, I basically... I, I drafted every search warrant as if I would want to defend it myself. I would do knock and talks and kind of making a record um, and do that in terms of how I would want to defend it and making the case I would want if I was a prosecutor. Uh, and even reports, I would write them as I would want them kind of read. So that's kind of a, just kind of seeing the challenges first before I did the work is kind of how I did a little bit different than what we see some people that have, have done both. You brought up a, a, a memory, me being in court, and the prosecuting attorney on one side is betraying the facts of the case and I'm testifying and the defense attorney portrays it as us being in the narcotics unit crashing in the guy's door and then and beating him up and and what happened is the man as soon as we hit the door it went wrong from the very beginning 
we used a sledgehammer back then and it went through part of the door and he took off running to the bedroom and I was first in line behind him, took off running after him. He dove onto the bed in a prone, like Superman type position, reaching for the other side and I'm thinking, this is not good. He's reaching for something. And he winds up reaching for a Thompson nickel-plated uh, style 45 caliber rifle and the fight is on. And fortunately, everybody's fine. No one, no one got shot or killed or anything like that. Uh, the arrest was made. Drugs are found. Everything else. But I found it very difficult to explain to the the courtroom what it was like, what was happening. Did you find your experience doing it made it easier for you? Um, yes and no, Jay. And I'll tell you, you make a great point there. That story you just told. They can if, if a cop's experienced it, they kind of know what you're talking about. But again, I know that Jay Wiley didn't get shot, right? Because you're talking to me right now and right. killed, and so I know I know how it ends. And and, and I've, I try to tell people that I don't care if you're the most gifted storyteller, if you're Homer himself, you cannot. We are visual people, and, and I'm sorry, visual creatures, and you, no one can convey the stress and situation by telling something uh, in a courtroom, which is exactly the way, uh, the irony is, is how we do that. We're talking to Brian Serber on the Law Enforcement Show. Very interesting story. You can listen to the show as a podcast for free. That's right, 100% free. Just go to letradioshow.com, click the Be Heard tab, you'll find us there. Or do a Google search for a Law Enforcement Today podcast. Be sure to subscribe today. Remember, it's free. I'm going to take a short break. We'll be right back. All too often, we find ourselves getting asked, where can I find other great podcasts? Do you have any suggestions? Because of this, we decided to create our own network of podcasts here on Law Enforcement Today. You can access top podcasts about law enforcement on our website and free app. Head to letradioshow.com, click the Be Heard tab, and there you will find our network link where we will continue to add podcasts from first responders and more. Remember, that's letradioshow.com to find out more information about law enforcement today, our podcast network, and to download our free app, letradioshow.com. It's the Law Enforcement Show. We're turning our conversation with Brian Serber. Brian is a prosecuting attorney for Oklahoma. It's a lot more that goes into that, but uh, I don't want to get lost in a lot of details. He's also an investigator, sworn investigator for the state of Oklahoma for quite a period of time as well. Before we went to break, Brian, you started talking about testifying in court and presenting a case in court where the typical case of a, a drug search and seizure warrant where weapons and everything else are recovered. And did you find it easier to make sure you got the, the intricate details into testimony after you knew what it entailed? Yes, uh, I think once I uh, became an agent uh, and I knew what was in court, it it it, uh, it certainly helped me to kind of identify what things out there I could use if I was kind of, if I was prosecuting the case. And so, I, I, as much as I can, I try to convey those and uh, and just let kind of prosecutors know because again, almost all prosecutors, none of them have been out there and uh, and seen what police officers do. And it's, it's kind of the irony that's the, the probable cause um, in terms of what's more likely than not, 
oftentimes that is uh, we have police officers and prosecutors. I'm sorry, prosecutors and judges that review that. But there, there's no certification in law school that tells a prosecutor what is more likely than not for a police officer out in the field with experience. Uh, there's, there's no certification for a judge to determine probable cause. It's just kind of a, a separate uh, a branch in oversight. So I think as much as police officers, if we can kind of convey the difficulties, because that, that report and communication with the prosecutor – that's our entire window to what happened. Right. And so uh, that, that, that's what I try to kind of get across because um, I, I just let uh, prosecutors know uh, that there, it's a lot – it's very difficult to encapsulate no matter how good your, your uh, report writing skills are or your testimony skills, exactly what happens there. I found it very difficult. And people who taught me how to be really, really good in, in case preparation uh, and court testimony were – public defenders in Baltimore and also uh, the prosecuting attorneys or district attorneys uh, because their line of questioning. And I, I look, when I came out of the academy, I thought I knew a lot. I thought I was well prepared and I was, but I really had no idea what to expect. You know, one of the things that helps the most is when, when a police officer sits with the prosecutor in court as well, sometimes they call them different things, different jurisdictions, the case officer, uh, even though you're a witness, typically excluded, but there's an exception on the evidence code that allows the uh, at least one officer to sit there as kind of the party uh, exception to that rule and, and to watch what happens and how and how it does. And But even testifying, it really helps every officer kind of know what's relevant or how you can be attacked when you uh, make an arrest or, or find evidence or whatever may cause you to testify. And so that really helps um, uh, prosecutors. I'm sorry, it helps prosecutors and it helps the uh, police officers kind of know what's out there to communicate it the next time. One thing's for certain. It's not like you see on television. It's not Perry Mason. It's not uh, Law and Order. It's not Blue Bloods. It's not like that. And I, I do recall a combination of, like I said, the defense attorneys, public defenders, uh, district attorneys, and, and the old-time police. I'll give you a great example. Um, when I was a young police officer, we had a serial rapist in, in our area. It took a long time to catch him, identify and catch him. But one of the things that they taught me was Look, you're doing a great job as police, but when you write your report, you don't want to leave out some vital information and lose a case on that. Uh, you don't want to do something like if you have to go hands on with someone and use physical force, you don't say they fell down the stairs and risk a murder case over something stupid. Just write down the facts. Absolutely. Absolutely. And so many of the facts, by the way, this is something I say all the time. When we had like fatal car accidents, road conditions. At night, it was raining. It was wet. Maybe factors in the reason why there's the accident and the uh, and the vehicular homicide. However, in cases of a violent crime, while those are facts, they quite often weren't factors. A particular race of people involved, and people always make it a factor when it's not often a factor. Does that make sense? Uh, yeah, absolutely makes sense. You know, and, and part of the problem is on a lot of. Uh, cases or situations the the what the police uh do is not fully captured in court for instance if if the police work and exonerate somebody and they do that that never makes its way to the courtroom uh, a, a lot of the uh, allegations against police about disparities uh in in arrests by race uh or, or conduct by race while there, there may be disparities uh, in terms of 
the compared to the overall population uh, with race and gender, for that matter, uh, it, it typically doesn't. Uh, th- that is what's in the courtroom. That is not when you look at when officers conduct stops and high volume of traffic stops. They're when they're accused of profiling. That uh, that, that actually those typically mirror the uh, the population. And again, it, the, the mistake is people think that what you see in courtroom is the entirety of, of an officer's work. And when they work to exonerate somebody, they're not police don't target somebody. It's just as important to actually clear an innocent person. But when but that work that officers do actually is never seen in the courtroom. Right, uh, and usually the people who bring it up will be the defense attorneys. Well, isn't it true? So and so was a suspect. And uh, this is something I can get into arguments with people about all the time. They'll say, a perfect example is a lot of serial murderers wind up targeting prostitutes and people that have drug addiction problems that are in vulnerable situations or at-risk lifestyles. And they'll say, well, the police don't care to try to catch them. When that's one of the hardest crimes there's to catch because it's stranger on stranger and it's really... It's very random how they pick their victims. And the same can be said with serial rapists. And they're, they're very frustrating, very, very frustrating to try to catch. You know, Jay, you, you bring up a, a, a great point. That when I was a uh, uh, prosecutor in my first round of uh, uh, being an assistant DA, there was a, I, I read some books by a guy by the name of John Douglas, who's kind of the actual one that invented profiling, FBI agent that came up with profiling. He wrote books called Mindhunter, The Cases at Honest, Anatomy for Motive. And... Uh, he discussed that, and and if you look at, there are certain principles that go with uh, serial rapists. So this guy'd come in. Uh, he was walking around in the middle of nowhere uh, in this in this small town from another state in the middle of the night with gloves on in August. Cops stop him. Uh, he had some weed on him, and I think a, a, a gun and a knife sent him up to our and uh, our office to prosecute. And, and he's representing himself and didn't want a lawyer. I'm talking to him. Well, that's if you read the. That's actually a rape kit. I mean. Right. And like, if you look at anatomy of a motive, and that's I think all people should uh, in law enforcement should read that. No one finds themselves doing something for nothing. Every single thing you do uh, has a motive behind it. And if you're walking around uh, uh, one state away at four in the morning with gloves on and what looks like a rape kit, that's just you can't say you're doing nothing. Uh, exactly. And, and reading the books, I knew he because he wasn't in his comfort area that he had. He was actually what well, gone, gone mobile, which means he's somewhat of an accomplished serial rapist. So. A lot of detail of that story, but ultimately what we did was... Let me take a uh, short break. We are talking with Brian Serber. Brian is a a prosecuting attorney. He's also been an investigator for the state of Oklahoma. Uh, We're going to talk more about, in particular, a case involving the prosecution of a serial rapist. This is the Law Enforcement Ace Show. Of all the radio stations in the United States, there's only one show like ours, the Law Enforcement Today radio show. And on Facebook... There's only one official page. Do a search on Facebook for Law Enforcement Today Radio Show. That's Law Enforcement Today Radio Show on Facebook. When you get there, click like and follow. Don't go anywhere. We'll be right back. Drug-related incidents are an everyday occurrence for law enforcement officers, but they don't have the means to help these people. If you or your family member is struggling with substance abuse, drugs, or alcohol, get in front of a compassionate treatment facility. Call Fine Recovery's Confidential Hotline at 866-663-2193 to talk with someone who can get you help today and get a free insurance benefit assessment. That's 866-663-2193. 866-663-2193. 
return conversation with Brian Serber on the Law Enforcement Show. Brian calling us from Oklahoma is a prosecuting attorney for the state and also for uh, the United States government as well. He's a, he was a investigator for the state of Oklahoma, uh, a sworn law enforcement officer as well. Before we end the break, we started talking about a case you were involved in, Brian, then involved a, a serial rapist. And he was seen walking around four o'clock in the morning, suspicious manner. Officers saw him. He was wearing gloves. He was armed. That right there makes a lot of uh, alarm bells go off in my head. Well, absolutely. And, and these officers knew that. And, and so they, that's why they got in contact with him. I mean, guys wearing gloves in August. Just said he was out walking, stretching his legs, had been fishing uh, at a local lake, and was just walking around this neighborhood. Well, that's just ridiculous. And if you know, uh, and officers know this, that you don't just find yourself like, why am I walking around a neighborhood? And, and, and so there's always some motive behind that. So they uh, they arrested him. He went up. Didn't and because he seemed they they really wanted him on the radar. That oftentimes those charges would have gone to the to the uh, city municipal court. They wanted to kind of be in the district court of record. They sent it up to us. And I'm looking at this, and and of course having read the the uh, the books on serial rapists, you kind of know one if you carry a kit, and then um, you're somewhat advanced in your uh, serial rape career. Mm-hmm. And the fact he had left his state, and so almost without exception. Serial offenders, arsonists, rapists, whatever it may be, they begin in their comfort area. So if they have actually left that in an area he has no connection to, we know he'd done that. So at that point, we um, I got the judge to uh, to raise his bond. He was not a happy guy, and we. Uh, but you know about serial offenders, they actually have the method by which they uh, they operate. That's kind of their their mo, and that's uh, one of the things that investigators look for. So we uh, at that point in time, he wouldn't give consent for his car. Uh, we uh, called the drug dog from, from the jurisdiction, alerted. There's an entirely another rape kit that was set up in there. We sent a teletype out to all the surrounding states involving unsolved uh, rapes with tape and binding. And uh, the next day, we got, uh, I think it was about a year-old case where a, a lady uh, got broken into her house, had the bandana on. Um, he spoke with a speech impediment, couldn't say it's ours. The victim remembered that. I've been recording. Once he started getting kind of uh, weird on me, I recorded my conversation. Uh, he, he's actually he began to actually tell me how he was walking around fantasizing. I kind of just called mm-hmm. on a little bit of his. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was walking around doing nothing, and I said, "Dude, I know what you're doing." And he just soft sold, and so I was looking for an opportunity. I would do it. Told me about um, all these uh, his history of women not liking him, and because he's he's short, but that's why he, he had to fantasize about forced sex because uh, he would never say rape. He called it forced sex. He had to fantasize about that because consensual sex did not seem realistic to him because he would never have it. That next day, the victim, who actually during the assault pulled down his bandana after he had taped her up, uh, recognized his face and said she almost vomited. Um, and uh, they put a hold on him and extradited him to the uh, – it was actually up in Kansas, which is north of us. Uh, and he was charged with that uh, breaking the house and, and uh, raping that victim. So, and so uh, many she called me later. So many of those people, they want to become killers because they can't leave a witness behind. I think that's exactly right. I mean, there's there's a complete warped sense of uh, of uh, morality. I mean, people understand that these kind of psychopathic predatory offenders, they don't have the value system that uh, you and I have or anybody else. And so, yeah, I mean, they, they, they are um, basically the only thing, and, and there are plenty of people out there, that that will assault uh, sexually assault women or molest children. That 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 they they want to molest and rape as many as they can. The only 
thing that stops them from doing that uh, is a lack of an opportunity by someone just uh, being difficult or the threat of being caught. I mean, that's it. They they have no moral aversion to doing that as many people as possible. And it, and if it means us escaping, then that's why oftentimes these uh, violent sexual offenses are, are the, the next step is to kind of make sure there's not a witness. I think you guys may have saved a lot of lives. I, what comes to my mind are people like Ted Bundy and I can't remember his name, but the the Garden State Strangler uh, that, that was on the loose forever and ever and ever. And they were all serial rapists that turned into murderers as well. And look, we have, we've had so many throughout history. And not just American. They're all over the world. Uh, I don't want people... Uh, that's, I get a little angry when people say it's just an American phenomenon. It's not. That's absolutely correct. I mean, the, the most famous serial killer ever was Jack the Ripper yeah. in, uh, in England. Yeah. And uh, that's still unsolved. And one of the challenges I've always felt, and for me, it's, it's difficult to differentiate the conversation between serial killers. And I've never investigated a serial killer. I've investigated and arrested many people for homicide as a patrol officer and a patrol sergeant. And the serial killer is a different beast. I've had one case of a serial rapist that took a long time to catch, and we wound up catching him. And uh, the prosecution, while successful, they didn't get anywhere near the amount of time they should have gotten because no one was killed. That person was more than likely going to advance to become a murderer further along in their career. I mean, that's absolutely right. I mean, look, these uh, these predatory offenders, I mean, what it is, it's, it's kind of a, a learning process. And... They will, uh, they'll learn again when they're, that's why, uh, oftentimes they begin their first offenses in, in their comfort zone. And, and it's, it's, I mean, if someone, if you or I decided to say, you know, I'm going to rob a bank tomorrow, setting aside that, uh, I mean, if, if we just decided to do that, well, probably the first thing you'd vision is, is like, I, I would go with one I'm familiar with and I've been to in that kind of comfort zone. And only when they can operate and learn in their comfort zone, do they kind of then, then go mobile, and that's why if, if they get to that phase, because uh, you don't have uh, geographical suspects you can look into, registered sex offenders that are within the area, that's when it becomes very difficult uh, to do. And so it's uh, there's that's why we really need good operators out there to kind of catch these guys because uh, they live, breathe, and exist to victimize someone and get away with it. And uh, anyone that says they don't have self control. They have all the control, and this is what John Douglas made the point in his book. They have all the control not to do it in a police officer and make attempts not to get caught. And oh, so, oh, yeah. And they plan things out. It's, it's very meticulous. Uh, how was the prosecution of your case? So, um, you know, actually, he, we had him on, uh, on the charges. He had, we actually uh, released our hold on him for, to go to uh, Kansas. I know, I know he was convicted and, uh, and pled to it. Actually, that, uh, like I said, that, that victim... Uh, in that case, it had tracked me down. She heard the story, uh, called me, and had a long discussion. It was very nice when she had called me because it had been something that was kind of eating at her. And so he did several years in prison. I, I would say not long enough. Uh, I don't know that he's uh, he's actually been uh, rehabilitated. Uh, I, but uh, he he got a uh, significant stint. But um, like always, I, I don't know someone that does that and is seeking to do it again. I don't know if there is a sentence that is sufficient for him. Uh, we talk about rehabilitation. You brought that up. In your opinion, can sex offenders, repeat sex offenders, be rehabilitated? Well, I mean, the uh, the evidence isn't very good. I mean, for, for people to find themselves in prison, 
the uh, the recidivism is is pretty high. I mean, uh, just our current prison population. Because look, it's, let's be honest, it's pretty hard to get in prison. I mean, it, it takes a lot of if it's not a murder or a kidnapping or rape, it's pretty hard to get in prison uh, today. But when you do, people that get out, you know, I think forty-four. This is a Department of Justice study. Forty-four percent get arrested within one year. The average time someone when you release from prison, the average time they get arrested uh, is uh, is five times when they're released. So, like my boss made a point to me saying, it kind of shows we're doing a pretty good job of screening, getting the right guys in prison. And uh, and when you say you get arrested again, it's typically a uh, you know even if it's a property offense. Uh, for the drug offense, we all know those are funded by committing property crimes. You know, people don't actually, right. uh, you know, they, they don't go and quit, you know, quit going out to eat to fund their meth habit. I mean, they steal from everybody and cut copyright all the new houses and and shoplift. And so the, these kind of relapses and recidivism, it's, it's kind of a euphemism for victimizing somebody else. We're going to take a, a short break. We are talking with Brian Serber on the Law Enforcement Today Show. Ever find yourself in a situation where you can't listen to the whole Law Enforcement Today show? Never fear. Past episodes are available online as a podcast, and you can listen for free. That's right. The Law Enforcement Today podcast is free. Do a Google search for Law Enforcement Today podcast, or simply go to letradioshow.com and click the Be Heard tab. Got more coming up you don't want to miss. Don't go anywhere. We'll be right back. One of the most frequent questions we see is, where can I find great podcasts? Do you have any suggestions? Yes, we do. So we decided to start our own podcast network on Law Enforcement Today. That's right. You can find top podcasts about law enforcement on our website and our free app. Go to letradioshow.com, click the Be Heard tab, and there you'll find the LET Podcast Network. We'll be adding more podcasts from first responders and more. Again, to find the Law Enforcement Today podcast network, go to letradioshow.com and click on the Be Heard in our menu or download our free app today at letradioshow.com. Return conversation with Brian Server on the Law Enforcement Today show. Brian is a prosecuting attorney in the state of Oklahoma. He's a federal attorney and also a state's district attorney he was a sworn investigator for state for quite a while uh fascinating career and there's so much about the prosecution end when we get to court that people really don't get because hollywood whether it be television or movies or or, or whatever it might be uh, to be honest with you brian i started watching more when my wife and i binge watch we watch more bbc related police episodes and dramas than we do American because the American ones get it so wrong. Does that hold true with the courtroom cases also? Yeah, you know, I can tell you that uh, I happen to be old enough that I started prosecuting before the CSI uh, explosion where there are 15 versions of CSI. And what CSI did is it put out there to everyone, including jurors, that we just walk around and shed trace evidence yeah uh, that, that there's just and, and it's it's not anything like this i mean look leaving a fingerprint is a very random event a lot of things with the surface uh the, the contact i mean it's uh i mean if, if you've had to ever 
fingerprint a combative suspect, it's not that easy to, to get a usable print on the guy. And so we, we don't do that. And so jurors oftentimes would say, well, you know, there, there was no there was no DNA on 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 the uh, the bandana that uh, was at the scene. So we, we couldn't convict the guy. Well, regardless, you knew the bandana was used by the guy that was robbing the store. So, I mean, it, it wasn't put on there by a robot. I mean, it wasn't owned by a robot. So they, they will acquit someone and write, and they'll say, well, there's no DNA, so we couldn't show it was him. Well, we know that the actual, you know, the actual guy that robbed the store was wearing this bandana. And if you're saying there's no DNA, that means no one can be convicted. I mean, they just kind of ignore the evidence that uh, – uh, that the, the guy was actually, you know, running, sweating, and, and it was, was, you know, uh, had, 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 wasn't wearing the bandana and had the money in his pocket. I mean, it's, and I'll tell you, closing arguments are all the time uh, saying, like, you'll see them in child molesting cases where the allegations are that the, the uh, perpetrator has uh, fondled the victim. And you'll hear closing arguments that say, are you going to convict this man and take his liberty in such a day where there's no physical evidence that we have? Well, if what the victim described, it wouldn't leave any physical evidence that you would find in an exam. But that's the kind of stuff they have, and it's and it's made it much more challenging to kind of prosecute cases. You brought up something that right away came to mind. Uh, and by the way, the whole DNA thing, we did, back in the day, we didn't have it. It was in infancy. Uh, it was very rare to get a fingerprint off of a crime scene, even murder, or a weapon, a handgun. It's very hard to get fingerprints off a handgun. Uh, sometimes, I can remember one time we got fingerprints off of a shell casing inside uh, the magazine of the of the pistol. But other than that, I've heard of cases where DNA, they got the guy, the DNA matches everything else, and the jurors go, we think it was a plant. And yeah, yeah, how, exactly. how is that possible? You know, I uh, <laughs> I wish I had the answer to that question. But yeah, they, they've had... Uh, I've seen that um, you know there's a case I've I've uh, been made aware of recently where the guy's saying he's framed and uh, the murder weapon and bandana used during the robbery um, was planted in his house. Well, then they did a DNA test. This guy's in prison. Did a DNA test, and it turns out his DNA is on both the right. defendant's DNA. To which they're saying, well, of course it was in his house. It was just planted there by somebody else. I'm like, well, <laughs> I mean, this was the end-all, be-all. And I'll tell you another thing that happens is sometimes, and this is all kind of all in the wording. You're saying things that may be factually accurate, but they're conveying something that's not true. Uh, there have been some cases around this area recently where a guy uh, was uh, uh, in prison for a murder, and then uh, you know they'll, they'll try while he's in prison to say, uh, you know, at this, it was like a shooting in a parking lot at a commercial parking lot. And uh, as investigators do, crime scene, they seize about everything that's there, including like a, uh, a Kleenex or a tissue. Right? There's no indication it was, that that tissue even was um, had anything to do with the shooter. Right. And if they collect everything, being good, because they get criticized if they didn't. Well, then, as as that comes up, well, you know, the uh, the killers, the guy in prison, his DNA is not on that tissue. And uh, of course, nobody is on there. But the the thing that's put out there it becomes like a lead in a media story is uh, attorneys say that uh, evidence found at the scene his his DNA was not on the evidence at the scene, exonerating him. Well, it doesn't. I mean, maybe that's something your your lawyer can say in closing. His you know his 
DNA wasn't on there. But there's no indication that Kleenex is even relevant to the case. But so it's conveying something that's not true, and then people think, oh, my gosh, there's this wrongfully convicted individual in prison. I think it kind of ups these burdens where people think, my gosh, I, what, what is a common-sense case? Is uh, Jurors are worried they're going to be someone that convicts some innocent person. Uh, and uh, when all the evidence indicates uh, that it's there because of these, these stories that, that uh, get so much uh, just headway. One of the things that really aggravates me to no end, and people say that because of this radio show and other things I do, well, did you watch this documentary on so-and-so was convicted of murder, turns out he was innocent, and you listen to what the people in the documentary say, and they'll say exactly that. A tissue was taken from the parking lot crime scene, his, his DNA was on it, or someone else's was, and therefore, that casts a shadow of a doubt, when in reality, it had nothing to do with the crime scene. Well, exactly. And, you know, a lot of these, these documentaries, I mean, look, I tell people, they're selling drama. They're not selling facts. Right. And, and, and if they just interview uh, some celebrity or the defense attorney or some advocacy group, if they don't talk to the prosecutors that prosecuted the case, if they're absent from, uh, from any interview in the documentary, there's probably a reason for that. Because those prosecutors and cops will have facts inconvenient to the narrative they're spinning and all of a sudden well it's not that big of a deal and uh and i've had family members i mean I've, i'll be eating dinner like they uh, they they'll watch a documentary of a case that one of my prosecutors prosecuted a murder case and they're like they're gonna have to do something about this and of course they weren't even interviewed and i give them i tell my family the rest of the facts they had no idea but it was something that happened and i mean it just even my pro prosecution family is like oh, they're gonna have to do something about this case yeah and i'm and i just just drove me nuts I it, get it mad becomes about it. Uh, and we need to keep this in mind in regards to everything especially the news when people watch television news in particular there will be cable channel doesn't matter what it is they'll say well i heard it on the news and they are not obligated to tell you the truths or facts. They are obligated to get people to watch their channel. Oh, it's, you know, that's exactly right, And which has been, it kind of led me to even to write the book on criminal justice reform. I mean, the, 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 this whole, I can tell you the whole notion of, of medical marijuana, they're doing it by anecdotes, saying, hey, it cured my cancer, but they never, there's the, 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 these media stories never interviewed oncologists to say, no, it turns out Donors did not find the cure to cancer that's eluded us for decades. The, the, the other thing that's been sold is it, 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 like weed helps with childhood epilepsy. And American Epilepsy Society, the American Pediatric Society, American Academy of Neurology, all of them vehemently opposed giving any kind of cannabis to epileptic children. But it's, it's pushed out there, and, and people think in these ballot measures that it, it's between letting kids have seizures and legalizing marijuana. Well, of course, to put it that silly. way, it's it's an easy choice. Well, I'm the, I don't want kids to have seizures. I want to do whatever th- th- they can have a good life. I've seen this thing advertised where literally, and I, I'm a sober guy. I don't care if they want to legalize marijuana, and everybody decides to do it. I don't drink. I don't take drugs. I try not to curse. I try to eat healthy. I'm in bed early. I'm boring. I'm really boring. And I'm okay with that. But I've seen it advertised, it cures glaucoma, it helps with cancer, it helps eliminate seizures, and it'll get rid of your hangnails. How is that possible? Well, look, it, it's a model that was used. The entire reason we have the FDA is because they pushed this, this elixir, uh, and it ended up killing over 100 people, including several children. That's why we have the FDA. I mean, look, legalizing marijuana is the first time we've ever approved a medicine by bypassing science 
and doing it by popular vote after a political campaign. And here's and, more uh, of that heading our way, courtesy in particular of the Northeast United States. Brian, we are out of time. We're going to have to have you as a guest on the show again in the future. Thanks so much. I very much appreciate it. I've enjoyed it, Jay. Thank you very much. There's only one official Facebook page. What you do, you do a search on Facebook for Law Enforcement Today radio show. Click like and follow. There you'll find updates about upcoming episodes of the radio show. You can contact me. We also find unique, one-of-a-kind editorials and news articles. That is our Facebook page, Law Enforcement Today radio show. Be sure to click like and follow. We'll see you there. I'd like to thank our guests so much for coming on the Law Enforcement Today show. We've got another great guest heading your way next week. Don't miss it. Until then, this is John J. Wiley. See ya.